Well, good morning again, church. It's good to be with you again this Sunday morning. If you will turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 4, we have a spreadsheet passed back and forth between the elders and some of those who help us with coordinating Sunday mornings, and it looks like I've forgotten to update the sermon text for this morning on the back of the bullet, and it says 1 Peter chapter 5. We are going to conclude chapter 4 this week looking at verses 17, 18, and 19. So if you'll turn there with me. I feel like I frequently give announcements for guests, but we continue to see guests every single week. We praise the Lord for that. We preach through the Word of God, verse by verse, each week. And if you're a guest with us, we have been in First Peter since we planted the church. We left our sending church in First Peter chapter 2, and we picked right up where we left off in chapter 2, verse 8, and now we find ourselves in chapter 4, verse 17. I'll read the text this morning and ask God's blessing on our time. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, and these are the words of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed... But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household or the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Thus is the reading of the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to sing truth back to you. We know that it brings glory for you to hear those things from our lips that are eternally true in you. And it also renews our minds. We pray now as we come to the preaching hour that you would renew our minds here, that you would, by your Spirit, inform us according to your Word that we might be changed and more conformed to the image of Christ. And above all, let us see again that great sacrifice of Christ on our behalf which is effectual to make us into your people through his blood. It is in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, 
Beloved, you may not recognize this name, but I am sure you are all familiar with your body's acute stress response system. It's sometimes called your sympathetic nervous system. Most people know it as a flight or fight response. When humans encounter situations that are mentally terrifying or pose a risk to our physical safety, the body kicks into high gear for the sake of self-preservation. The ASR triggers the release of hormones in your adrenal glands, which are found above your kidneys, hormones like adrenaline and noradrenaline. These set off a chain reaction, which leads to an increased heart rate, blood pressure, and also a breathing rate. We choose either fight or flight in those moments. I experience ASR frequently while I'm mowing grass. I wear a set of noise-canceling headphones for work so I can listen to audiobooks and podcasts while I'm mowing, but I often lose track of what's going on around me, whether it's an angry neighbor slapping me on the shoulder from behind, telling me to get, his, get my truck off of his lawn or else, or I make a second pass over that yellow jacket's nest, and by the way, they are always wide awake after the second pass. Um, it is fight or flight. Our body kicks in to high gear. Well, at Basswood Church, the church that we were sent from, uh, John Cox, who's a good friend of ours and also former special forces, used to tell us at our firearms training classes that when your ASR is going wild, in the military they call it going code black, one of the best things that a teammate can do is come over and gently put their hand on you and ask how you're doing and ask you if you're hurt and ask you if you're leaking anywhere. This has the effect of calming you down, bringing you back to reality, and reminding you of what's really going on. What's the big picture? What are we here for? In today's passage, Peter gives the big picture. He's talked about fiery trials back in verse 12, and he's talked about sufferings in verse 16. And today, he's going to put them in their broader theological context. He's going to give us the big idea. Did Peter's church have some acute stress response going on? It's likely that they did. We haven't talked about this in a while going through 1 Peter. So just a little bit of background review. 1 Peter was likely written between 61 and 64 A.D. Nero was emperor at this time from 54 to 68 A.D. It's fairly common knowledge that Nero was a few fries short of a Happy Meal, which was, by the way, likely due to the fact that eating with lead utensils was in vogue in the Roman Empire. And you know that lead is very toxic for the brain, and it's likely that uh, Nero was eating a little bit too much lead. But either way... On July 18th, 64 A.D., Nero ordered his guards to set Rome on fire. He went up to the Tower of Messenus, playing on his harp and singing the song of the burning of Troy. Like a good tyrant, he uh, wanted to sit and watch the world burn, scorched earth policy. This was not a popular political move, and when word got out, Nero threw the blame at, you guessed it, the Christians. And then, for the members of the early church, which Peter was likely pastoring several, 
things got rough. They were subjected to the most novel of cruelties contrived. Some were sewn up into the carcasses of dead animals and left out in the streets at night for the wild dogs to chew through and find the treat inside. Others were dipped into hot tar or had wax-soaked garments put on them and they were hung from trees and set on fire at Nero's house parties. Brings a whole new perspective to the fiery trial. As an aside, Fox's Book of Martyrs should be required reading for every young person in the Church of Jesus Christ, especially young boys. I encourage you to go pick up a copy. You can get a free PDF online just about anywhere. I think Amazon has a free PDF also um, through their Amazon Kindle. So Peter's churches were dealing with some ASR. Their fight or flight was in full go mode. And there was quite a bit of apostasy during this time of persecution in the early church. To prepare his church members, Peter exits Street View and pans way out to look at the full map of God's redemptive plan. Now, I wonder if you found yourself in situations like this, maybe with a child, during a discipline situation. It's helpful to remind your child of the big picture, of what we're here for, what's going on. Long before you bring the board of correction to the seat of the church, that child might drop a nasty face on you. You know the face of the kid trying to sneak lemonade from the refrigerator, and instead he grabs a hold of the lemonade concentrate. After a discipline, the child should be fully restored to the family in a state of joy, so as to continue in fellowship with the rest of the house. We're not to leave a discipline situation with our children still in a bad mood. The job's not done. But I find that it's helpful when that child's having trouble shaking that fussy face to remind them of the big picture. Jesus is king. He rules this family. And we are going to serve him. I've also taken to doing a, a salute with the kids. I put my fist over my chest and I say, we're going to serve, and then they finish, King Jesus. And I make them do it too. And they usually get a chuckle out of it and laugh a little bit. But it kind of reminds you of the big picture, of what we're really here for and where this is all headed. So what's the big picture for Peter's audience? Christian persecution both purifies the church and signals the destruction of the church's enemies. Christian persecution both purifies the church and signals the destruction of the church's enemies. Our afflictions are a sign to us of God's affections for us and also of the coming doom of the wicked. What's interesting, when Peter speaks of this coming doom of the wicked and of the purifying of God's church through what he calls judgment, he uses the term house of God, house of God. Your translation probably says household of God, but God's redemptive work through history always renews the world from his temple outwards, from his temple outwards. This is to say that that house of God language is important, and we'll get into this a little bit more in just a minute. We've seen this all the way through Genesis with the garden temple, 
to the tabernacle in Exodus, which culminates in the Solomonic temple, the temple is always purified from within and that spreads throughout the world. It is intended to purify the nations. Almost all of our modern translations, however, interpret the Greek phrase oiku tu theu as household of God. This is intended to help you see that the church, familial, is the referent. But I don't particularly appreciate translators doing this sort of thing, as I've already alluded to, because the Greek literally says the house of God. The house of God. It's not principally about the familial, but about the theological. It points us back to the Old Testament to see the types and shadows so we can clearly see what God is going to do in the present. That's why Peter was saying house of God in the midst of this persecution to the people of God. He's connecting it to the old covenant dwelling place of God and pointing to God's new covenant home. Peter's readers could see that God had always acted decisively when it comes to cleansing his temple and we are that temple now and God will treat us no different. The Legacy Standard Bible says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. So, he says judgment is going to begin with the house of God. What kind of judgment? Judgment language might sound a bit strong for the church. Christ having, praise God, forever dealt with our sins. As I alluded to in the previous section, Peter's word choice is grounded in Old Testament theology. And there's two prophecies I think that he has in mind here that he wants his church members to think back and reflect on. The first is from Ezekiel 9. In Ezekiel 9, after a brief angelic walkthrough of Israel's prostitutions and idol industry, Yahweh reveals to the prophet how he plans to deal with the abominations he found. And he starts in his house. Ezekiel 9 says, The Lord said to Ezekiel, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Now you probably notice some similarities here. God is passing judgment. The language begin at my sanctuary in the Greek Septuagint is very similar to the language that Peter uses in our passage today. And since judgment begins with the house of God, he starts by judging the elders. Of course, in the next chapter, we're going to deal with elders and their responsibilities in the household of God. But I want to offer a counterpoint. The judgment in Ezekiel 9 is clearly punitive judgment. And Christ has taken all of our punitive judgment on Himself. For those who believe, there is therefore now no 
condemnation. The judgment that Peter is referring to with the house of God is disciplinary judgment. It is disciplinary judgment. And he is likely drawing from a passage from the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 2, says, The Lord that you seek will suddenly come to His temple, the messenger of the covenant that you delight in. See, He is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who will be able to stand when He appears? For He will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. This judgment would be a fire, as Peter has said. It would be a trial to God's people. It would get so hot that the prophet Malachi would say, who can stand when he appears? This is similar to the idea that Peter presents in the next verse, and with difficulty, if the righteous are saved. So this is why Peter uses temple language, the house of God, instead of familial language. The cleansing of the temple in the Old Testament was the sign. And the cleansing referred to in Malachi, which Peter says is happening now, is the thing signified. It is the telos. It is the end. If God is going to renew the world from His temple outwards, then the temple must be cleansed. So what does Peter mean when he says it's time? You should be able to understand why he says now is the time. This persecution isn't a freak accident. It was all part of the plan. What Malachi prophesied, Peter says, has come. And church, we need to realize that we live in the most privileged age, the most privileged age in the history of Humanity. I'm not just talking about our material blessings in the West. Those things are abundant. And the kingdom of Jesus is so full of blessing that it can't help but produce industry and wealth and art and music and government and economy, human flourishing. But when I say that the church lives in the most privileged of times, this is what I'm referring to. Since the fall of man taking place maybe just hours after the completion of God's six-day work. Humanity and the world fell into the curse of darkness when they disobeyed the Lord. They were banished from His presence and refused re-entry into paradise. They carried guilt with them wherever they went and were poisoned by their own thoughts towards one another, thoughts that would lead to murders and thievery and meddlings, and all sorts of evil deeds. They were broken beyond repair. And worst of all, God would not dwell with them. But then Christ came, and everything changed. As the great high priest, He came to purchase the eternal dwelling place of God with His own blood. The Father 
responding to this did not just pardon the church. He did not merely welcome the church into his family. He so delighted in the cleansing work of Christ for his bride that he decided to move in, sending his spirit to set up a permanent, eternal residence in each member of the bride of Christ. Nothing, beloved, that we can do will ever change that. You cannot get rid of Him. You could not walk away from Him if you tried. He is so pleased with the work of Jesus Christ that He will never go anywhere and if you have faith to believe it, He is delighted to dwell in you. That being said, and this gets us to Peter's point in saying why it's time. God has pretty high standards for His house. He isn't a college-aged millennial. He doesn't ignore the dirty. The whole concept of, I'll get the dishes and the laundry done later, is as foreign to Him as an article praising majority culture written by the Gospel Coalition. Christ painted the interior of the church of Christ with His own blood. And the rest of the church is going to match it. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that the Father does not discipline? For if you are without discipline, which all receive then you are illegitimate children and you are not sons. How do we apply this? How do we think about ourselves in this now's the time age? First, God's judgment on the church is proof of our citizenship. And yes, it does have to be hard. It's going to be painful. Heat changes things. God requires our discomfort. He requires it because He requires discipline. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, again from Hebrews, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Secondly, and this we can take from our text, that we should repent from being envious of the wicked. David, in Psalm 73, having acknowledged his covetousness of the apparent ease of sinners, said, When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and I didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you, that is God. Yet, I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me up into glory. Think about this, beloved. Is any of that true of the wicked? Is any of that true of the wicked? Are the wicked always with God? Does He hold their right hand? No, because they ignored all of His counsel and would have none of His reproof. 
and they will meet with their end. And, again, if you can receive it, the church will sing about it. Lastly, discipline your kids. Spank your children. God builds His kingdom through households. His own household is built as we build ours. He spanks His kids when they sin, and He expects that we spank ours. Don't fear losing your children if you spank them in love. You're far more likely to lose them if you don't. Don't let a tender-hearted wife or mother, fathers, keep you from doing what God requires of you. A father's rule may occasionally extend to protecting his children, especially his boys, from their mother. Spank your kids. God demands it. He requires it of us. And Peter turns his attention from the purifying of the house of God through the judgment we experience in this life, going to the same place of consolation that David did in Psalm 73, the end of the ungodly. The end of the ungodly. David says, But when I went into the house of the Lord, I discerned their end. I remembered the big picture where this is all headed. I panned out. I remembered God's theological purposes in the world. What is likely going to grate on a soft serve heart is that Peter intends the damnation of the wicked to be an encouragement to us. He intends that to encourage us. He isn't saying the church is going to get it in the teeth and the lost, well, we better get them saved. Oh, the poor lost. That's not what he's saying. This passage isn't meant to be missional. Now, I'm not saying that you can't look at this passage and feel a fervency for winning the lost. I'm not saying that's something you can't take out of it. But for the church who's in the midst of intense persecution, perhaps a daughter of a family sewn up in animal skins and chewed alive by wild dogs, perhaps a father and an infant dipped in hot tar and burned alive at a house party for Emperor Nero, Peter reminds them, remember where this is headed. Remember, no sin goes unpunished. It's either going to be punished on Christ or you'll suffer it eternally. Without saying it, the niceness of our day has taught us that God's justice is a bad thing. The sorority sermons that we've all heard by pastors who Michael Foster calls women of both genders, render God's final judgment something that causes us to lament. But we won't lament when God finally judges the wicked. We will be relieved and we will worship. One Christian hip-hop artist said it this way, I'm going to do my best here. <laughs> We're teaching you theology so you can understand, according to his plans, the slaughter of the damned, unspeakable reality to fall into his hands, no sequels, its finality, and awful is the span. 
No weeping or apologies. No sneakiness or bribery will keep the Lord from honoring what His law demands. We are pieces of His pottery. He causes us to stand. His people see Him properly. Exalted is the Lamb. I half expected John 2 to come up and drop a sick beat for us. <laughs> Beloved, it is not unloving to be consoled by the end of the wicked. The guard who watched Richard Wormbrand was in his cell frequently to flog him for, pr- for praying. It probably won't surprise you that this guy didn't have a ton of patience. Day after day, multiple times a day, he would beat the daylights out of Wormbrand just for praying. One time, in exasperation, he came into the cell screaming at him that there was no point in praying anymore. The communists had taken everything from him, wife, children, job, home, everything. He had nothing left to pray for. And you likely expect Richard's response. He said, I can still pray for you. Now that love of Christ that should well up within us for our enemies is right and appropriate. And if that man in his hardness of heart can resist the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it is right that he be damned. And it is right that we worship God for bringing the final judgment on people like this. There are only two options, beloved. Repent and believe or suffer eternally. If they won't hear the gospel of Christ, if they stay diamond hard to the very end, if they so hate Christ and His church, that they will hang her members from trees and light them on fire or gouge out their eyes with hot pokers or sit in a stadium while wild animals first molest. Yes, the Romans taught their carnivorous beasts who were to devour the Christians first to engage in perverse acts with those Christians and then devour the bride of Christ... Peter's church can be consoled. They're not going to get away with this. They will not get away with this. Justice will be done. Charles Spurgeon's mother used to tell him when he was a young boy that since he had grown up in a home where the gospel was regularly proclaimed, if he didn't repent of his sins and turn to Christ she would stand next to Jesus on the last day and applaud with all heaven the judgment of God on His damned soul. And every Christian father and every Christian mother will do the same for those who do not repent and turn to Christ. Lost person, what are you going to do on that day? having refused the grace of God all of your life, when Jesus declares you to be among the goats, separates you from His flock forever from His love and casts you into the outer darkness, that is what your sin deserves. 
This morning in the reading of Genesis 44, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. I tell every lost person in this room today, there is the cup of sin that has been found in you and you will not escape judgment. Either someone is going to atone for that sin that has been found in you or you will face that punishment all by yourself forever. And the good news is that someone did take the penalty for all of that sin. And that was Jesus Christ. And that was Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, who came to this world around 2,000 years ago and lived a perfect life as both fully God and yet fully man, completely being able to bear the weight of our sin, which would damn us for eternity, and yet being able to perfectly identify with us as sinful people made in God's image. He not only lived that perfect life in order to be able to give it to those who would trust Him, but He died the death that we deserve so that that wrath of God, which we should celebrate, has been completely and forever moved off of the people of Jesus. And those who would accept this Christ, those who would receive Him today, can still do so. That path still lies open to everyone today who hears my voice, who has not closed the door coming through Christ and Him alone. You can answer that question today. Who's going to bear the weight of my sin? Answer, if your faith is in Christ and not yourself and not in your works and not in your tithing and not in the things that you've done for other people, but it is wholly forsaking those things and anything else in your life and looking only to Jesus, that man or that woman or that child has no need to fear being strung up by a tree and burned alive. That day in paradise. That day in paradise. And that's why Peter reminds them, big picture, guys. Remember the big picture. The judgment's going to start here because this is how God purifies the world. It takes from the temple and it moves outward. And he quotes from Proverbs 11.31. The Greek translation of Proverbs 31, which Peter quotes directly here from the Septuagint, says, And if the righteous man with difficulty is saved, the ungodly and the sinner, where will they appear? Daniel says in Daniel chapter 12, that those who sleep in the dust of the earth will on the last day awake, some to shame and everlasting contempt, and some to everlasting life. Jesus repeats almost that exact same thing in John chapter 5. Revelation 20 says that the lost shall be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus tells us in Mark that that very lake has always got something to burn. And the worms there always have something to eat. That there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place in anger and unrepentance. The clearest passage 
of the final destination of the wicked is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, which mirrors Peter's words in today's text almost exactly. Paul says to the Thessalonian church, We ourselves boast about you among the churches of God for your perseverance in the faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. He goes on to say, Since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and by the way, it is right, we should not be ashamed of God meeting out His justice, and to give rest to you who are afflicted, and to us as well at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the Lord Jesus Christ, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. I have three things to say in response to what Peter said at the end of verse 17 and in verse 18. First, annihilationism is a theological novelty and it is errant theology. The trend of erasing hell is a growing one. We are a soft people and we want a soft God. We don't just want women in the pulpit. We want a woman sitting as a divine judge on the last day, covering her eyes to the sin. Historically, the church has almost universally believed in eternal conscious torment for its entire existence. Origins universal salvation heresy was the only significant challenge until the modern period. And since, we have been, since then, we have been trying to drop hell like it's hot. Augustine gives some solid reasoning for eternal, eternal conscious torment. He says that there, in striking contrast to our present conditions, there, in hell... People will not exist before or after death, but they will always exist in death. Never living, never dead, but eternally dying. And never, this is big, and never can a person be more disastrously in death than at the point when death itself is deathless. Christ comes to defeat every enemy. The last to be defeated will be death. Why must the wicked suffer eternally? It is because it is what they deserve and there is no more death. They will be eternally dying. And church, we have to insist on this. Jesus spoke more frequently on hell than He did on heaven. We can and should rejoice in the thought that the reprobate will be punished. Our God is a God of justice. This can and should comfort us. You know that our legal system in America is changing from the Judeo-Christian innocent until proven guilty to the lynch mob hang them up and investigate later. Why? 
It is because they don't have the comfort of eternal divine justice. And we do, or we should. But the church for the last one to two hundred years has been ashamed that someone who committed high treason against the God of the universe would actually have to suffer for it. Like that mother whose son is on trial for murder, she sits out in the courtroom telling those in attendance how sweet her boy is and how he is misunderstood and he needs one more break. If you are here and you don't know Christ, let me tell you, after this moment, you may not get another break. You should bow the knee. Time is running out and you are hanging over the pit of hell like a spider hanging from a web over a fire. Francis Schaeffer asked the question that Peter's readers were likely to ask at this point. So, Pastor Peter, how then shall we live? Because we should not be surprised at the fiery trials, but instead rejoice after them, because we are blessed in the presence of the Spirit of God in our trials, so long as we suffer for righteousness and not wickedness, because God's judgment is first meted out on His, uh, in this life on His people, but the unrighteous will one day get their final reward, how then shall we live? Peter says, to entrust our souls to God by doing good. The Greek word entrust comes from two separate words meaning to place or set before someone. This is not the language of trusting God. It's not what he's saying. It has to do with giving something to someone else for safekeeping and from the mouth of the Lord Jesus in his final hour. Father, into your hands I commit. It's the same Greek word, entrust. My spirit. By the way, Peter isn't giving soft words here. He's not saying, since you've had all of this hardship, put a smile on there. We can trust God. No. In the Greek, he's commanding. This is a command of God on our lives. He's not suggesting that we entrust ourselves to God. He's commanding it. When's the last time you heard that strong of a language in a difficult counseling situation? We've never seen this kind of persecution, brethren. What the early church went through is unimaginable. Some of these people were ready to throw in the towel, and Peter doesn't offer them soft counsel. You must keep entrusting yourself. Why? Because your God is a faithful creator. The word faithful is a claim to consistency from everlasting to everlasting. Not one moment in the whole history of eternity has God lacked faithfulness. And he uses an interesting word. He says creator. This is the title of an author. This has to do with the sovereignty of God. And these moments, these difficult trials of ours, this intense persecution that Peter's church was going through is when the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is so sweet. 
Everything is authored by God. Everything has meaning. Nothing is without divine significance. God is always faithful to His own. Modern Christians have been taught nihilism. We're closet nihilists. My life is full of sorrow and it doesn't mean anything. Macbeth said, History is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. How often have you faced trial in your life and you think, this is so meaningless? Mark Twain said it a little bit more succinctly, albeit crassly. He said, history is just one damn thing after another. Those are memorable quotes, but they're also fake news. God is the best storyteller. There is so much packed into the narrative of history that we will never uncover all of the plots, let alone the subplots. Many of you in this church have dealt with chronic illnesses for years. Brother Ken's face pain, Diane Bergman's headaches, Wendell Schrock's back trouble. We've had a host of infertilities in our church. Then people that have been frightened, have dealt with or are dealing with cancers. And some of you, especially our women, testify that at times you feel like you're in an unending state of sickness. Do you know what's behind all of that? A faithful creator. Many of the couples in our church, including Tammy and I, have lost children. Do you know that that's not meaningless? How many of you have years of your past that you feel like are wasted time? Like completely unredeemable time? You can never get it back. And you can do something with the rest of your life, but that period of your life has no eternal significance wrong. That is not how God tells his story. He's a far better storyteller than that. Everything in the universe is so packed with meaning. Names in the Bible, places, events, they always said, what does this mean? Because God was authoring it all and they knew it means something. It's significant. Beloved, he is able to restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. So Peter says, I command you, give yourself to God. Give yourself to God. Entrust yourself to the faithful creator and do good. Whatever you are keeping back from Christ today, beloved, don't hold it back anymore. From the depths of your soul, vomit up the idols and the sin and the coveting and the broken reeds of stabs you're leaning on instead of Jesus Christ. He is the author of this story and you can trust him. Tomorrow, beloved, we will officially go on the map in Anderson County for the name of Jesus Christ. We may have been heard about but we will be known tomorrow. The commissioners and the public will know our names and our church. We will tell them very plainly 
that babies are more important than household pets. And that God forbids women to hire assassins to murder their children. They probably won't like it. How will we handle persecution if it comes our way? First, we remember that if God allows it, He's just cleaning house. He's purifying His temple. This is grace for us, and it's also mercy for the lost. We become more like Christ, and they see in us more of Christ, which we pray leads to their salvation and the transformation of our city. If they will not bow the knee, they won't go unpunished. God will see that every wrong is made right. As Sam Gamgee said, one day everything sad will come untrue. Because God is creating this story and He is faithful. We know how this will end. With a great marriage between us and our Savior Jesus Christ. And then He will begin writing the great story of eternity. Which no one on earth has ever read. Which goes on forever. In which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate your goodness to us. The fact that we are partakers in this great divine story. And not just partakers, but places of residence for you is unthinkable. Why would God dwell with us? And then we remember Jesus Christ. We thank you for our Savior, his work on our behalf, and we cannot wait to raise our glasses on that day in a toast to Christ and His eternal kingdom. We look forward to that great marriage supper of the land, but in these days, it is likely that we will face trouble. Would you remind us that as trouble comes, you are just purifying the temple of God, making us more like Jesus, and I pray, I ask that there are people here who have held things back for years that they have been unwilling to share and let go of, that today you would give them the courage to let it all come out and entrust themselves completely, mind, heart, body, soul, entirely to your faithful, creative care. We know we can trust you. So help us to continue in worship and in praise of you. And we do it all for the sake of Jesus, our Savior. It is in his name we ask these things. Amen.